What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. November 2016. An investigation was underway to find Kayla Brown and Charlie Carver, who had been missing for two months. The couple seemingly vanished without a trace in August, and police had little to go on. But through a stroke of luck, authorities got a lead that took them to a property in Woodruff, South Carolina. There, they made an unbelievable discovery. 30-year-old Kayla had been chained up in a metal storage container for 65 days. Her boyfriend, Charlie, shot dead. And the coroner came up and said that they had positive ID that it was Charlie. That was a hard time. You just don't want to hear those words. How could a man just walk out not knowing who this person was, anything about this person, and just end his life right there? The suspected killer was an unassuming real estate agent. Soon, police would discover two more bodies stashed on the grounds of his property. The man was also hiding more secrets. Thirteen years earlier, he murdered four employees at a motorcycle shop, a cold case that had languished unsolved. Todd describes that before he leaves the scene, he goes back to each victim and shoots him in the head before he leaves. This callous killer had been hiding in plain sight for more than a decade. Getting away with those murders signals to him that there are no consequences for this. I can kill and I can get away with it. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Todd Kolhep. Todd Samsell was born on March 7, 1971, in Fort Lauderdale. His parents separated when he was two, and after his mother remarried, he adopted his stepfather's last name, Kolhep. According to criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley, Kolhep began exhibiting distressing characteristics at an early age. When we look back at Cole Hepp's childhood, we are almost ticking off all of the warning sign behaviors for serial homicide. We've got somebody who has real difficulty forming relationships with his peers. So he doesn't see children his own age as potential allies, potential friends. He sees them as competitors. He can only communicate and interact with them aggressively. He basically wants to to crush everybody else and to come out victorious. We also have a history of animal cruelty. We know that he bleached a goldfish. We know that he shot a dog with an air gun. Here is somebody who enjoys causing harm to other people and other living creatures. It's something that, that makes him feel powerful. And that sadism is a thread that will run throughout the rest of his life. Kolheb's family moved from Florida to South Carolina and in 1982, his mother got divorced again. Kolhep continued to act out, causing many disruptions at home. When he was 12, it was decided that he would move some 2,000 miles across the country. 
Investigative journalist Daniel Gross explains. Eventually, he was fed up with living here and convinced his mother to let him go live with his birth father, who he really hadn't seen at all in Arizona. And I think that might have been a way for him to try to see life in a new light and maybe get a fresh start, change of scene, change of venue. But the move did nothing to improve young Todd's behavior. And in November 1986, the troubled teenager turned to violent crime. He was 15 years old, and the reports say that he had gone outside and found a neighbor who was a 14-year-old girl, and he ended up kidnapping her and taking him back to his father's house. And, and that's where he, he duct taped her mouth, he held a pistol to her head, and sexually assaulted her. It was an appalling and unprovoked attack. He threatens to kill her. He says, if you tell anyone about this, I'll kill your family, I'll kill your siblings, I'll kill you. I mean, scared her to death. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel weighs in. It's chilling, genuinely chilling, that he's so convinced of his own importance, so convinced of his own superiority, that he can get away with anything. He really does think that the girl won't tell anyone. Meanwhile, the victim's intrepid younger brother had already called police about his sister's disappearance. The rape victim had a five-year-old brother, and he was concerned that he couldn't find her, so he called the police. And as he was on the phone to the police, his sister comes in through the door and then talks to the officers and tells them what had happened. But for me, the interesting thing is, is Cole Hepp's reaction when he was arrested, because his overriding concern was, how much trouble am I in? How much prison time am I likely to serve? Absolutely no concern for his victim whatsoever. It's all me, myself, and I. In October 1987, Todd Cole was sent to prison for 15 years. He was only 16 years old. You know, a lot of people say that's your time for rehabilitation. Um, I think for Todd, it was the opposite. I think he, he sat there and continued to harbor all of this inner struggle. After serving his sentence, Cole Hepp was released in August 2001. He had spent almost half of his life in prison. So now he's 30 years old and uh, newly out of prison. So, of course, he's going to move back to South Carolina to be with his mom. When Cole Hepp is released, he starts an image management campaign, essentially. During his time in prison, he's performed this role as a model inmate. Now he's been released. He needs to basically do some damage limitation in terms of establishing a new life for himself. In 2006, five years after his release, Cole Hepp applied for a real estate license in South Carolina. Despite being a registered sex offender, the 35-year-old managed to find a workaround. They raised that issue with him and said, well, we know you're applying for this license, but there's this on your record. And he submitted a letter essentially just downplaying the entire conviction. And he basically explains this offense as a misunderstanding between him and a girlfriend. So he's basically saying, well, this was, this was her fault. This wasn't really me. Cole Hepp received his real estate's license in June 2006 and opened his own business soon after. He was living a normal life, at least outwardly, and was respected in his community. His hobbies, however, pointed to a more brash, aggressive lifestyle. Cole Hepp was a, an avid collector of firearms, and I think this is something that he inherited in a way from his father, who also 
had quite a considerable collection. But I think for me, it's about what firearms represents. They represent power, they represent authority. And I think if you look at them in the context of Colehep's other hobbies and interests, they are quite grandiose, they are quite alpha male. So he had a pilot's license, he was into motorbikes, he liked fast cars. So all of this paints a picture of the, the kind of American dream, you know, the, the macho American character. What people didn't know was that this charming real estate agent was hiding a shocking secret. In November 2003, four years before opening his business, Todd Kolhev had walked into a motorcycle dealership and gunned down four people in cold blood. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. So today, the day I am recording this, is the two-year anniversary of the loss of a pet. Her name is Ava. She was a foster fail, and we had her for less than three years, and we lost her to cancer. And I have lost pets before, but Ava was just the best dog and was taken way too soon. And I have a really hard time dealing with this anniversary and dealing with the grief around her loss. And maybe you've been struggling with grief or loss loss too. Grief sucks because you think you have a handle on it and then it can just bubble up and overwhelm you. Well, our friends at BetterHelp can help. They are trained to help you deal with grief, learn coping skills, help you learn how to process your trauma and move forward. BetterHelp is great for a lot of reasons. Number one, it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You can do texts. You can do phone calls. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's a quick one. And if you don't like the therapist you're matched up with, no big deal. You can switch anytime for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash what today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash what. In late 2003, 32-year-old Todd Kolhep was living in Spartanburg, South Carolina, following his parole from prison two years earlier. He'd served 15 years for the kidnapping and sexual assault of another teenager in 1986. After being incarcerated for the better part of his life, Todd was readjusting to life outside of prison. Then, on November 6, 2003, a dreadful crime in the nearby town of Chesney sent shockwaves across the community. There was a slaughter at a local motorcycle shop called Superbike Motorsports. Investigative journalist Daniel Gross remembers the owner of the shop. Scott Ponder opened it and he had a passion for motorcycles, loved to ride, you know. So they built this whole business around this motorcycle shop and um, people knew about them. You know, it was, it was a thriving business and it was a family business. 30-year-old Scott employed a small number of people at his store, including his 52-year-old mother, Beverly Guy. Scott's wife, Melissa, had moved from Arizona to South Carolina to be with him. The couple got married in January 2002. Melissa says her husband had always known he wanted to open his own business. From a young age, um, teen years, he was really into motorcycles. And so I think early on in his years, he always planned on having his own 
motorcycle dealership. Like he knew that that, that would happen. He was just a gentle person. He had the ability to make you feel really comfortable. I think which is why he was so successful in his business is because people that came in were immediately put at ease with just his demeanor. In November 2003, Melissa had recently found out she was pregnant with the couple's first child. So Scott was not going to actually go to that first appointment with me. He was busy and at the last minute, he just decided, you know what, I'm gonna go hear the heartbeat. I've never heard this before. This is new and exciting. And so he surprised me by showing up at the hospital. I'm going to forever remember that day because he wasn't supposed to be there, and he was. And we walked in, and we were able to experience that together. And it was pretty exciting, you know, for them to find this beating heart and us to, you know, get excited over the fact that, yay, we're, you know, we're going to have a family. And that was a good day for us. I never would have imagined that two days later it would all change. The morning of the rampage at Superbike Motorsports started out like any other day for Scott and Melissa. So November 6th of 2003, he went on to work and I got ready for work. And my last uh, memory in my mind and the picture I have in my mind is I passed the motorcycle dealership that morning and honked at him and he was standing at the side of the dealership and he waved and blew a kiss and that's honestly the last time I ever saw him alive. At around 3 p.m., Melissa received a call from a concerned colleague who had heard news of a shooting at the bike shop. She immediately raced across town. I got to the location that all of the law enforcement was at and there was a good 10 or 12 law enforcement vehicles with their lights on, had the road blocked off, and I just ran past all of them and said, that's my husband's business down there, and I just started running. Before she could get close to the store, Melissa was escorted home by police officers. They stayed with her as they waited for news from the crime scene. I was standing at my front glass door, just looking out front, and I see Spartanburg County Coroner drive up my driveway. So two people walked in, told me to have a seat. The woman immediately started talking and she identified herself as one of the coroners and she just said, we had an unfortunate event happen at your husband's business today. Um, Scott was shot and killed. Melissa's world shattered. And I immediately started crying and said, I don't, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm pregnant, I can't run this business by myself. I'm, you know, just sorrow. I started to think, you know, his mom. I've gotta call his mom, where's his mom? I, I need to talk to her, where is she? Where's, where's Beverly? And that is when they told me that his mom had been shot and killed as well and that Brian Lucas had been shot and killed and they hadn't identified the fourth victim yet because he didn't have any identification on him. Later. The fourth victim was identified as the 26-year-old mechanic named Chris Sherbert. Chris, Brian Lucas, Beverly Guy, and her son Scott Ponder, all cold-heartedly slain. Investigators struggled to identify suspects in what appeared to be a random attack. Seven months later, in June 2004, Melissa gave birth to a 10-pound baby boy 
and named him Scott Jr. He changed everything for me. I, um, the first moment I laid eyes on him, I thought this is why I'm still here. Because honestly, I wanted to have been down there at the dealership that day and just taken with him. It, it was so hard. But yeah, as soon as they put that little boy in, in my arms, I, I knew that that was my sole purpose, why I was still here. While Scott Jr. never got the chance to know his father, he says that even after all this time, his mom never lets Scott Sr.'s memory fade. She told me a lot of, about him and how uh, he liked to uh, mess with my grandma a lot back when he was younger and he thought it was funny. And uh, she liked to tell a lot of stories about him. And uh, it helped me like just picture what, I mean, who he really was. During his birthdays, usually I'm in school, so she takes me out of school and we go to lunch. We just kind of celebrate his life, I guess, and not not feel down about it, just have a day where we celebrate him and just him, you know? The investigation into the killings at Superbike Motorsports continued to stump authorities. The assailant hadn't stolen anything, and there were no witnesses to the crime. But suddenly, in late 2004, police had an unlikely suspect on their radar. It wasn't until my son was about six months old that I got called into the sheriff's department and they said, we have something we need to talk to you about. It's really serious. And my first inclination was they know who did this and they want to talk to me about it. So they sat me down in a room, an interrogation room, and said, we took DNA from a diaper you left here a couple of weeks ago, and we sent it off and compared it to the blood from the crime scene, and we have uh, DNA that does not match up with your husband's. And so we need you to tell us what's going on. Who's, who's your baby's father? You know, how, how do you play a role in all? I mean, I was taken so far back, I couldn't believe it. In an instant, Melissa went from a grieving widow to a suspect. She was so stunned by the accusations that she even offered to have Scott's body exhumed so a new DNA sample could be taken to prove her innocence. I want to say it took about a month when I, I received a call back from them. In essence, what they told me is Scott and Brian's blood vials were mislabeled. Somebody put the wrong name on the DNA. And so they were doing a DNA test of my son with Brian Lucas, not knowing it was Brian Lucas's blood. They just thought I had had an affair. The mix-up was resolved, but it left a lasting impact on Melissa. It, it broke my heart. It broke my spirit. I decided to move back to Arizona when my child was one. And I just figured it was time for me to start back over in my home area and kind of get us out of the public eye because everybody knew who we were here. And I, I didn't want to raise my son that way. The police had no leads, time marched on, and the investigation went cold for more than a decade. But the killer was hiding in plain sight running his own business and acting like a regular citizen in the community. But under that ordinary Joe exterior was a man filled with rage who took out his frustrations in the most extreme way on innocent people. Todd Kolhep, 
was the unknown killer. There's records of him being in the store and the shop owner and manager and some others have apparently making fun of him in a way, sort of a lighthearted banter. You know, they, they were they were known to, to joke around. And Todd being Todd, that just fueled a fire in him. You know, whereas anybody else, it's like, okay, if somebody's joking towards me or making fun of me even, you know, it's, it is what it is. You know, they move on, right? But Todd's not gonna take, take that from anybody. And then making fun of them, he felt that they had to pay. Cole Hepp returned to the bike shop on November 6th, 2003, and waited until he was the only customer in the store. Then, he drew a gun on the employees and exacted his revenge. And just one by one, Todd executes them. He shoots them, cold blood. Brian and Scott actually were the last to be shot. And um, after they saw what was happening, they started to run for the front door and um, Todd was able to shoot both of them right outside the door. I think getting away with those murders at the bike shop would have been really meaningful um, for Cole Hat because it signals to him that there are no consequences for this. I can kill and I can get away with it. Feeling invincible, Cole Hepp would spend the next decade building a successful career as one of the top real estate agents in Spartanburg. But Cole Hepp couldn't tamp down the malevolence inside him. Beginning in 2015, three more people would die by his hand. Attention all true crime fanatics. Have you ever stopped to wonder just how close you've come to danger without even realizing it? Every single day, we encounter countless people on the street, in the grocery store, at the gym, never truly knowing who they are or what they're capable of. But what if one of those seemingly ordinary people was hiding a dark secret? What if they had done something unthinkable or were planning to? The Minds of Madness is a weekly true crime podcast that dives deep into the criminal psyche, covering the most shocking and disturbing cases you've ever heard of from all over the world. We're talking about ordinary people who do the most unthinkable things, like the feral Goldilocks-style intruder who left a disgusting calling card before embarking on a reign of terror leading to a nationwide manhunt or a seductive ex who used voodoo and manipulation to always get what she wanted. The Minds of Madness examines the psychology of the perpetrators, trying to understand what makes them tick, while interviewing experts in forensic psychology and criminology, as well as survivors who fought for justice. Whether you're listening on your morning commute or during your evening jog, The Minds of Madness will completely immerse you in the world of true crime. With gripping stories, insightful analyses, and unforgettable survivor's accounts, The Minds of Madness has everything you need to satisfy your darkest cravings. The Minds of Madness is available wherever you get your podcasts, or visit mindsofmadness.com for more information. In December 2015, over a decade after murdering four workers at a motorcycle dealership in Chesney, South Carolina, 44-year-old Todd Kolhep remained a free man. Police had no idea that the local real estate agent was the remorseless killer who committed the crime all those years ago. 
Colehep had recently acquired a 95-acre plot of land in Woodruff, South Carolina. The grounds would soon become Colehep's killing fields. On December 22, 2015, 29-year-old Johnny Coxey and his 26-year-old wife Megan were reported missing. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley explains their connection to Colehep. Megan and Johnny were a young married couple in their 20s, and they were quite vulnerable. They'd experienced quite a few issues in the past, um, drug addiction, they'd had their, their child removed by, by social services, and they came to know Cole Hepp because he offered them work, working on his property, doing manual labor. So I think he very much saw that vulnerability in them um, and, and exploited that because Cole Hepp is a predator and he is very good at spotting vulnerabilities in other people. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel details how the couple became targets for Cole Hepp. Cole Hepp sees them as almost a perfect pair of victims. So he makes a pretense on the 19th of December, 2015, he says, I would like you to come out to the Woodruff property. I need some clearing to be done. Now, not many people are going to miss them. I mean, they've been living rough. They, they haven't got lots and lots of uh, relatives around. He takes them to the property. They get out of the car. Cole Hepp shot Johnny, killing him instantly. Next, he overpowered Megan and locked her in a storage container. Megan remained trapped in the container for a week. Then, in an attempt to escape Colehep, she started a fire in her makeshift prison. In the end, she was unable to get away, and like her husband, Colehep executed her. He said she was acting like a caged animal. And so he said, quite matter-of-factly, I put a bullet in the back of her head. So now he's got two bodies. He digs graves for them both and buries them on the property. Goes back to work as a real estate agent, as if nothing whatever had happened. Investigators had no leads on the disappearance of Johnny and Megan Coxey. Yet again, the trail ran cold, and Colehep evaded detection. Eight months go by, then killer Colehep strikes again. On September 4th, 2016, the family of 32-year-old Charles David Carver, better known as Charlie, called the police to report their son was missing. Charlie's father, Chuck Carver, shares memories of his son. He was just a caring person. He always wanted to help people. He'd give you the last $2 out of his wallet and the shirt off his back if you needed it. You know, he was just that kind of a guy. Investigative journalist David Gross says the father and son had a great relationship. It seemed like a, a happy life. Charlie would text his father every day or every other day. They'd talk about sports. Um, so he lived a pretty normal life. The last text I got from him before he went missing was about football. You know, it was just a funny cartoon, and I still have it. <laughs> Charlie's girlfriend, 30-year-old Kayla Brown, had also disappeared. Chuck says the couple had only recently started dating. I ran into Charlie and Kayla at Walmart on a Saturday. We were shopping, and they were coming out, and he introduced Kayla to us. And that was the first time I'd met her, and five days later, they went missing. 
In late August, the couple had been contacted with a work offer by a friend of Kayla's. The friend in question? Todd Kolhep. Kayla had already known Todd Kolhep. They had met previously, and they had chatted online on Facebook pretty often. And, you know, at some point, Kolhep had offered for Kayla to work for him as well. You know, he was looking for work, and he knew Kayla as sort of a friend at this point. But as days turned into weeks, there was no sign of Charlie or Kayla. The couple had seemingly vanished. About 30 days into it, my wife and I talked, and I said, something's wrong. Don't know what's, what has happened, but just had that parent feeling that You know, it wasn't going to be good. And so we set our kids down and three youngest and said, this may not, you know, end well. You know, your your brother may be gone. Investigators searched in vain for the couple through October 2016. At the time, they couldn't know they would never recover the missing man. Charlie Carver had been dead since August 31st. Just like Johnny and Megan Coxie, Charlie and Kayla's visit to Kolhep's Woodruff home had turned sour the moment they stepped onto the property. So they came together on the property, and without hesitation, Todd Kolhep ends up shooting um, Charlie three times in the chest, and he drops to the floor. At this point, Kayla Brown is just stunned. You know, this she just watched her boyfriend get murdered in front of her, not sure what to do, basically silent, just standing there in fear. And Kolhev then goes to her, shoves her in the shipping container, and chains her up inside there. Kayla Brown became Todd Kolhev's second captive. She couldn't escape and would go on to endure hellish conditions for weeks. Meanwhile, for Todd Kolhev, life ostensibly returned to normal with no one aware he was harboring an abominable secret. The next two months, Kayla Brown is in captivity. She's on that property. No one's heard from her. No one knows where she is. Meanwhile, Kolhep is still living his normal life. He's going to work. He's working late hours. He's talking to people like normal. I think he's convinced himself that it's all worked, that my fantasy has come true. I have my captive. I go there every day, do what I want with her and I resume my, quotes ordinary life outside. He is so obsessed with his own satisfaction, with his own personality, with that God complex of his, that he doesn't believe for one second that she will ever leave his clutches. The perfect fly in the spider's web. She is his and will remain his. Time, however, was not on Todd Kolheb's side. By utilizing cell phone triangulation, investigators had tracked the couple to his property, and they were closing in. Then they realized that Kayla's phone is pinging in Spartanburg County, so they reach out to Spartanburg. And from there, they learn property records, and they can see that, okay, this piece of property is owned by a man named Todd Kolheb. On November 3rd, 2016, two months after the disappearance of Charlie Carver and Kayla Brown, the police were ready to confront Kolheb. We've got investigators in Spartanburg that go to Kolheb's house, which is about 20 minutes or so from the Woodruff property. And meanwhile, there's another team of investigators that go to the Woodruff property with a search warrant. 
and they get into the property and they start looking. They find Kayla chained up in the container. They hear her inside. They take a long time to kind of cut through all the chains and locks that had been on the container, open it up, find her, rescue her. Wonderful video of them actually opening the container taken by the police at the time. It's extraordinary. And they, they walk in and right at the back of the container, right at the far end, there she is. In the footage captured at the scene, an officer is heard asking Kayla about Charlie. With extraordinary composure, she tells investigators that her boyfriend was dead and that Kolhep had been the one to shoot him. Her rescuers radioed the news to other officers who were with Kolhep inside his home. When they told him they found Kayla, Kolhep played dumb. And at this point, Kolhep just shuts down. He, he kind of gives this blank stare and he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. The officers continued to push, but Kolhep carried on with the charade, claiming no knowledge of the girl found in his storage container. And they're pressing him on it, saying, we've got Kayla. Now you can either cooperate and tell us more, tell us where Charlie is, or we could go the hard way. Still maintaining his innocence, Kolhep told officers he needed an attorney. That was their cue to place him in custody. At last, they had their man, and Kayla Brown had been rescued from an unimaginable nightmare. He held her in a storage container for 65 days um, and, and subjected her to the most horrendous sexual violence. Um, he raped her twice a day um, on some occasions. She was simply there as his plaything to be used as he wished. She reported that, that Cole Hepp told her that he owned her, that she was his possession. And that is very indicative of, of somebody who is controlling, somebody who sees women as objects, somebody who is inherently a misogynist. So I think her account is a really valuable one, and I'm just very thankful that she survived to tell the tale. Unlike Megan, who we know sort of put up a fight and was very in very disagreement with Kolhab, um, I think Kayla did what she had to do to, to get by. Ultimately, you know, she was rescued, and I don't know if she ever thought she would be rescued, but ultimately that happened. There would be no good news for the Carver family. I guess it was that Saturday night about 7 o'clock. It was dark, and the coroner came up and said that they had positive ID that it was Charlie. That was a hard time. You just don't want to hear those words. Several days after learning of his son's murder, Chuck Carver visited the Woodruff property where Charlie's life had been taken away so cruelly. Standing there on that gravel driveway, close to the same area where he would have probably been laying, I was just like, how could he do this? How could a man just walk out not knowing who this person was, anything about this person, and just end his life right there. Later, the bodies of Charlie Carver and Johnny and Megan Coxie were found near each other on Colehep's land. He had shot all three of them and buried them in shallow graves. Meanwhile, Todd is already in jail arrested, and so the, the murder charges are already sort of stacking up against him while he's sitting there in those first initial days of being caught. 
Todd is already explaining to investigators, hey, if you listen to me and if, you know, maybe if we work out a deal, um, I've got a lot more to tell you guys. Todd Colehep was charged with three murders and the imprisonment of Kayla Brown. But the murderer was about to make a confession 13 years in the making, shocking the investigators who, for so many years, had been trying to solve this grisly crime. In November 2016, 45-year-old Todd Kolhep was finally in custody for the murder of three people in Woodruff, South Carolina. Feeling gregarious, the killer went on to boast about even more crimes. Investigative journalist Daniel Gross says one confession in particular stunned the investigators. He is just going in depth and great detail about the various things that he did, including, and most importantly, uh, the murders of the Superbike Motorsports families. When discussing the carnage at the shop, Cole Hepp told the officers that he had waited until all four employees had entered the building and that he cleared it in under 30 seconds. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says more about this sadistic declaration. And when he's describing to the police what happened, he's bragging about it. He's saying, you would have been proud of me. He's looking for validation. He's, he's wanting other people to be impressed by him. And we see this often in cases of, of serial killers. Once they are linked to a particular crime or a series of crime, they want to take the credit for it. They want full recognition for what they've done. Cole Hepp knew details about the Superbike Motorsports killings that had never been made public. After this long-awaited break in the case, officers contacted the families of the victims, including the widow of Scott Ponder, Melissa Brackman. I was walking out of the movie theater with my family, and it was Detective LaChica, and he wanted to know if I would be available in an hour, that I needed to be able to talk to him and be home. And I said, sure. And so he calls me, and. And he said, we have a confession to the superbike. And I break down. And I just, I can't believe it. Like, are you, are you serious? And he's like, this is not something I would kid with you about. And he started to explain, have you been following the news? There was a girl that we just recovered. And I said, I have been following that story. I'm like, how does that relate? You know, and he says, it is the same guy. After 13 years of unanswered questions, Melissa was overwhelmed by the news that the mystery of her husband's murder had at long last been solved. I was everything. <laughs> I was happy. I was angry. I was sad. I was in question of everything. Like, what was his motive? You know, why would, why would he have gone? And why did he kill my mother-in-law? Why did, you know, if he was mad at the dealership, why would he take out my mother-in-law? What, what's that about? The community of Spartanburg, South Carolina, was shaken and sickened. Residents couldn't believe that the well-respected real estate agent was a malevolent, vindictive serial killer. At this point, Colap has confessed to these four murders. He's confessed to killing Charlie Carver and the Coxies. Um, so he's got seven murder charges stacked against him and the kidnapping of Kayla. 
and shortly after, since he's confessed, there's they don't need to go to trial. Um, he, he ends up taking a, a plea agreement. If you plead guilty to these seven murders, we'll give you a life sentence and you'll avoid the death penalty. And so he said, sign me up. On May 26th, 2017, Todd Kolhep was given seven life sentences, one for each of his victims, plus an additional 60 years for the kidnapping of Kayla Brown. Two years later, in July 2019, a civil hearing was held for the victim's loved ones, who were seeking compensation from Kolhep's estate. And the hearing gave them an opportunity to confront the killer. The whole time I was talking, we were engaged. You know, he wasn't looking at the ceiling or the walls or the floor. It was me and him. And I was telling my story of Charlie, how he's lost has impacted me and my family. As I finished up, our attorney asked me, what was the amount of damages we were seeking? I said that wasn't seeking a certain amount because you can't put an amount on a person's life and no amount of money was going to bring him back because I wanted Todd to hear that. I wanted Todd to understand what he took from me. Scott Ponder's family was also there for the hearing, including his widow, Melissa. Her time addressing Cole Hep was particularly impactful to those in attendance. And uh, it was such a powerful moment because she had actually taken the stand to explain, you know, what, what this has meant to her and what this has done to her. And she used the opportunity to forgive Cole Hep, which is so rare to see, you know, somebody who destroyed her life in a sense and you know, killed her husband. She took the high road and she sat there and she looked him square in the eye and said, Mr. Colab, I forgive you. Did I really owe him? Not really, but I just needed him to understand that, you know, what his reasoning and what he's using was playful banter from a couple of guys that joke around a lot and that was the environment. And, you know, that was hard. The normal person does not go in and wipe four people out because they piss you off. Scott Jr. also got the chance to face down the man who had taken the life of his father mere months before he was born. Scott believes his grace and maturity at the hearing would be met with approval from his dad. I knew that he'd be proud of me, and my uh, mom and the rest of my family that was there were proud of me. I just, in general, knew I was doing good for my dad, and I knew that even though I was nervous, I had to push through it, and I just knew that I had to do it because this was the last chance I had to uh, speak to him and just get the message across, and that's basically all I wanted. I miss Scott. He was so good to me. I'm thrilled that I have a child that bears his resemblance and that has picked up some of his characteristics. And it actually, it's, it's good for me. It, ma- it makes me happy. It makes me feel like, sadly, as it is, it's all played out in, in a positive way. Since his incarceration, Todd Kolhep has hinted that there may have been other victims in the 12-year gap between the superbike killings and the Woodruff murders. I definitely feel like this story is just beginning. I feel like it's a story that um, that the nation is going to be interested in moving forward. If we learn about other killings, you know, these are other families out there that are looking for answers, and they could have answers if Colep is willing to come forward and provide more detail that can lead to 
a discovery of a body or who knows what else. I mean, as a journalist, this is one of those cases that you only really dream up. You know, it's, it's sort of larger than life, um, almost like a you're just reading a horror book or something. Even today, you know, he's in prison for the rest of his life. He's convicted of murdering seven people. I almost feel like we're still just scratching the surface. Hoping to uncover more of Cole Hepp's secrets, Daniel Gross continues to correspond with the killer through letters. It's a bizarre feeling. Every time Every time I see his signature on those letters or just his little banter of, you know, hope you're doing well or, you know, whatever he might say, it's a weird feeling because um, it's this gray area of, um, you know, you're a serial killer and we're not friends by any means. You know, let's try to find some more detail here and bring some other families some closure. Todd Colehep viciously murdered seven people and eluded discovery for more than a dozen years. His ability to blend into his surroundings made him an exceptionally treacherous killer, an ogre who committed disgusting acts of violence just because he could. Even the sheriff, Chuck Wright, mentioned after his arrest that he believes he might have even met Colehep at some point without even knowing that you know, he's shaking a serial killer's hand. And so that just shows that you know, Todd Colehep was out there. He was, he was in the public. He had built this successful brand. I think for me, what makes this case so exceptional are the different victim types that he targets. He kills anybody who is a threat to his sense of self. And I think it is that complete disregard for, for other people and anybody who gets in his way is going to suffer. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan. Production for Woodcut provided by Beth Parks, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beale, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. On the next episode of What Makes a Killer. On July 5th, 1998, an 82-year-old New York socialite was viciously assaulted in her home before being tasered and finally strangled. Her killers? A mother and son duo who would go on to be linked to crimes in five separate states. They later found out that they were being arrested for the bad check on the car, and that was a big relief to them. But little did they know, we were also investigating them for Irene Silverman's murder. The woman was a con artist who would stop at nothing to get what she wanted. Over a period of two years, she coerced her son into committing three murders. She transformed him into a really evil person like her. She was like a black widow, and he became that way too. Most of her victims were obstacles, as far as she was concerned, that needed to be got out of the way. There was something innately evil about her.